Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came to him and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile Anyone. I want to begin with what I think is going to be rather a personal and slightly divisive question. It may cause r- slight riot in the ranks. I'm nervous with this, but let me try it. You know, did you swear allegiance? Uh, for those listening in five years' time on tape or whatever it is, this is the day after the coronation of King Charles III and so the question is kind of quite hot in the news at the moment. But it, it, and if you did, with what qualification, and if you did not, on what basis? Now, I notice some, like Jonathan Dimbleby, the idea is absolutely abhorrent. I was listening to him on uh, Thursday morning when he was brought onto the BBC to put the line out there. I never pay homage to anybody, he said, and I have to say I mouthed over my breakfast cereal apart from yourself. But, uh, you know, did you? Did you swear allegiance? I mean, actually, fear God, honor the king. It's the heart of our constitutional monarchy. Uh, Funnily enough, MPs do it at the start of every new parliament. Judges do it. The House of Lords, they all do it. Diplomats do it. Soldiers do it. The clergy do it. Well, and, uh, you know, you may be sitting here saying, well, you know, I'm from the United States, so that doesn't really apply to me. Yeah, but you swear allegiance to a flag. I mean, kind of what's going on there? 
Well, I think what's going on in our passage today, chapter 15, 1 through 20, could not be more kind of apposite, but it's quite negative. Uh, Jesus is in the process of showing us that actually there's only one king, one governor, one lord, one king, one ruler, to whom it's worth swearing allegiance. Uh, We're in Matthew 15, right at the heart of the section of Matthew that we're in, which runs chapter 14 through 18. Uh, We have chapter 16, verse 17 and 18, where Peter says, you are the Christ. And Jesus responds to Peter, um, uh, yes, Peter, you are the rock. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so in essence, what this whole piece is about is Jesus assembling his church. I mean, we don't have a verb to church, but the word is effectively the same. He's assembling his assembly. He's churching his church. He's gathering his gathering. What is this gathering that the gates of hell will not prevail against? And in Matthew's gospel, you have chapter 3 through 7, he announces the kingdom. Chapter 8 through 10, the king arrives. Chapter 11 through 13, the kingdom advances. And now 14 through 18, we have the assembling of the king's people. And throughout the section, this section, the assembly of God's assembly, we're given, if you like, alternative authorities that might demand our allegiance. So we've had King Herod, that well-known adulterer. Now, he's put up a, a, as a possible authority, the king who had, had had another man's wife. You might have said there were three people in that marriage. And we've had the adulterous king, and we, we've been told, well, don't, don't sign up to that. Don't, don't put your allegiance there. And now we have the religious, the Pharisees, Jerusalem, the Judaism that had developed around the temple in the first century. And here we have a profound clash of kingdoms, kingdoms in conflict. Verse 1, we can see that. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem, the inspectorate, Ofsted. And here we have a head-on collision between Jesus Christ and establishment religion, and it's not a pretty picture. Well, here's the best I can do at the moment of a summary of the way the argument goes. Verses 1 through 6, its ethics are empty. Verse 7 through 9, its ceremonies are a sham. Verse 10 through 14, the leaders are lethal. And verse 15 through 20, the formulae are futile. And so I'm afraid it's rather a dismal picture following the glorious spectacle of Westminster Abbey and the crowning of King Charles III, and I'm so sorry if it's going to make you choke on your coronation quiche over lunch. Now, some people like a kind of key verse that helps to unlock the whole thing, or which it can all be built around. I think verse 13 is probably the one. He answered, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. And so we're in the garden. And here are the sweet peas, and here are the sweet williams, a very fine flower. And here are the French beans and the courgettes. And oh, oh, here's a dock, a nettle, out with a trowel, rooted up. And we need to grasp that what Jesus says here in the first instance is applied very specifically, uniquely to the establishment Judaism of the first century temple religion in his day. And it's really important that we get that. 
Not least because Matthew is wanting to show us the discontinuity between what Jesus is doing and what had established in Jerusalem in his day. And the man-made religion of Jesus' day was about to be radically uprooted. And the people of Jesus' day and Matthew's day needed to know that's not where the action is now. And this is why that's not where the action is. Just take a look at it. It's ethics. It's ceremonies. It's leaders. It's formulae. But I think verse 13 there, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up, allows us at least in part to apply it to any generation and any establishment religion and system that is not firmly rooted in God's word. Uh, not least because when Jesus quotes from, uh, from Isaiah 28 and 29, which was written 750 odd years before Jesus came, he applies it directly to the people sitting in front of him as if there hasn't been a moment's passing from the day that Isaiah wrote it. So I think, yeah, very specific. But then additionally, much more wide, any man-made system. So here is the religious establishment. Here are the great and the good at worship. Here is the cathedral and its clergy with its services and its synods. And the Lord Jesus declares its ethics are empty. So verse 1, uh, we've seen that the chapter begins with a delegation sent from Jerusalem to Jesus in the north. And the Pharisees and scribes represented the establishment order of the day. And it's most important we realize they're not kind of, in inverted commas, bad people. They're decent and upright and upstanding citizens. They are heads of local councils, chairs of local charities, trustees of worthy causes, doing immense amount of good. They are, if you like, the pillar of the establishment. This is a spiritual Ofsted, and they've got a complaint, verse 2. Why do your disciples break the traditions of the elders, for they don't wash their hands when they eat? Now, the traditions of the elders was a vast body of spoken law emerging from discussion amongst the law keepers about specific details of how you stayed in the right with God. It's described as a great corpus of oral tradition, commenting on the law and interpreting it in detailed rules of conduct, which the Pharisees viewed as having an authority almost on a par with Scripture. So here's the ethics committee. How come your disciples don't wash? Uh, what the traditions of the elders did, in effect, was to add on to God's commands a whole body of circumstantial what-ifs. Uh, they called it hedging the law, putting around the Ten Commandments reams of additional legislation that enable people to keep the law in fine detail, often whilst pursuing their lives without reference to God at all. Oh, it's all right, I keep that law, I keep that law, I do that, I tick that box, all is well. So in verse 3, what Jesus does is he leaves the washing to one side for a moment. Don't worry, we're going to come back there. And in 3 through 6, he goes right to the heart of the matter, taking a particular example. He answered them, well, why do you break the commandments of God for the sake of your tradition? 
For God commanded, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother what you have gained for me is given to God, he need not honor his father. And so for the sake of your tradition, you've made void the word of God. So the law is very simple. Honor your father and mother. Surely, at very least, that entails providing for them financially. If they fall on hard times, I can see one or two parents sitting here nodding vigorously. But you see, the tradition of the elders allowed that if a person declared that all his possessions were dedicated to God, then that person was off the hook and needn't give over the money they ought to have provided to their parents. But instead, providing what they wanted to use it for was sufficiently godly, could use it for themselves. And you can see the problem. The moment we move a millimeter from the simple clarity of the law of God. The principle's so plain. Honor your father and mother. But what if? And, and what if? And, and surely? And, but now? See, the Ten Commandments are utterly pure. They're, they're like the most rigorous distillation of what it looks like to be holy. And the moment we add in a what if, we're into what you might call loophole religion. The moment we add to his command, we detract from it. The moment we qualify his command, we nullify it. And actually, Jesus has been onto this since the very beginning. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? You've heard that it said, you shall not commit adultery. I say to you, whoever so much as looks at a woman with adultery in his eyes has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Do you remember that? So he's going for the purity, its most distilled form. Whereas the Pharisees have developed all sorts of reasons why you might actually divorce your wife. All sorts of causes. In one case, even if they cooked you a bad meal. Stop nodding, men, please. So by adding to God's law, they've subtracted from it. By hedging God's law, they've hidden it. By qualifying God's law, they've nullified it. And by editing God's law, they've neutered it, emptied it, and blunted it. And we see this kind of thing absolutely everywhere all around us once we realize. Uh, It's here in the city, isn't it? I was speaking with a group of bankers on this idea, and one of them was in corporate governance. And he said, yeah, that's why we've got 10,000 lawyers in the city. Loophole. But no amount of loopholes will fool God or Jesus. God's law is there, you shall not murder. God's law is there, you shall not commit adultery. God's law is there, you shall not steal. God's law is there, you shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. Well, it's so easy to see this across a culture, isn't it? I last spoke on this back in the autumn at the time of the Football World Cup. And Qatar were hosting... And everybody knows the Saudis' record on human rights. And here was the sporting world tying itself in ever more torturous tangles, seeking to justify. Oh, well, it's okay if we take the knee. Oh, oh, yeah, it'll be fine as long as we wear the rainbow laces and so forth. Equally, we could go to Hollywood, couldn't we? You shall not commit adultery. God hates sexual immorality. Oh, well, it's all right if we put an 18 on that film. That'll be okay. No, God hates adultery. He detests sexual immorality. Or you could go to the city, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Yeah, but there's a clause five points down in the small print of subclause G, little number 17, subheading 5. Let us off. You see it everywhere. 
But this is the religious establishment of Jesus' day. So it's right that we go to the religious establishment. And it's worth observing, we cannot have escaped our notice, that the very bishops and archbishops and moderators and canons presiding at yesterday's ceremony are the very bishops and archbishops and moderators and canons who've been called out by 85% of the global Anglican communion for blasphemously altering the word of God. So all this pretense that heightened ethics, it's empty. And that, of course, makes the ceremony a sham. Because once we fail to take God's word seriously and seek to cocoon the demands of God's law in a a blanket of soft regulation, uh, it's today's culture's redefinition, but we end up distancing ourselves from the very purity of the holy God whose law is the Ten Commandments. Uh, Rather than drawing us near to God, this blanket of regulation distances us from God whose law we're supposed to be keeping, and we end up focused on man-made regulation rather than the God-given word. We've lowered the standard of God's law. We think we've done really rather well. We become spiritually smug and self-congratulatory. Look at us. Well, Jesus will have none of it, verse 7. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. The ceremony is a complete sham. All that goes on in that temple. Now, the Pharisees have any number of rules and regulations around washing. Here's one of them. If a man poured water over one hand with a single rinsing, that hand is clean. But if over both hands with a single rinsing, Rabbi Meir declares them unclean unless he pours over half a litre or more. In other words, not enough water. Unclean. And all of that buffering... (laughs) from the purity of God's law, well, it it, it works against humility and meekness and self-examination. And so Jesus is saying, look, you can have 10,000 soldiers in your procession. You can assemble all the peers of the realm. You can dress up in extraordinary clothes from the 15th through to the 19th century. You can leave your palaces and you can process down your mouths. You can enter your cathedrals. You can have prayers said and oil brought and heads anointed and acclamations made. And you can have commentary broadcast in hushed whispers. It's all a sham. It's vanity. It's a mist. These people honor me with their lips. Their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. No significance to God at all other than he hates it and he will uproot it. Now, once again, this is very specifically directed at the temple Judaism of the first century. But Matthew is wanting to inoculate us against further formulas in our confessions and in our councils where we hedge around the law and therefore nullify it and neuter it. 
distance yourself from the word of God in all his purity, you distance yourself from God himself in all his majesty. Distance yourself from God himself in all majesty. And you distance yourself from his kingdom, his church, his people. Every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be uprooted. Did you spot the deep, deep irony that the moderator of the Church of Scotland handed King Charles a Bible? Sir, keep you mindful of the law and of the gospel of God as the rule of the whole of life and government of Christian princes. Receive this book, the most valuable thing that this world affords. Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the living, or lively oracles of God. Did you note the irony that it was the moderator of the Church of Scotland, the first church in the United Kingdom, to deliberately turn over God's word on marriage? Now, this interchange causes a dialogue between the people, Jesus, the disciples, and Peter. And verses 10 to 20 return to this issue of washing. The whole piece is just brilliantly crafted. Matthew, I think, is the most kind of technically detailed of the gospel. He was an accountant. It's really a gospel for the actuaries. You know, it's just fine detail the way it's all put together. Not only the ethics empty, not only the ceremonies are sham, the leaders are lethal and the formulae are futile. The leaders, verses 10 through 14, he called the people to himself and said to them, hear and understand, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. The disciples came to him and said, don't you know the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And he answered, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into the pit. Now, it's no wonder that the Pharisees are furious. The word is scandalized. And Jesus' talk where freedom of speech was not a given and where governing authorities had the power of life and death had very serious implications. Just as an aside, the courage of Jesus the quick-witted brilliance of Jesus. You know, it takes me three weeks to work out what I should have said in a high-tension meeting. And he's straight in there. He won't give an inch. He doesn't budge. He comes right for the jugular. The courage of it, it's just brilliant. And the image of the blind guide could not be more condemning, could it? You know, it's one thing to be blind oneself. But as a blind person, to entrust oneself into the hands of a guide who himself is blind is lethal. And the image of a blind leader with blind followers, with both leader and follower, actually unaware that they're blind, is even more troubling. They're doubly deluded and quadruply endangered, stumbling unwittingly, to destruction, this whole system. The leaders are blind, so they can't lead. The blind are blind, so they need leading. The blind leaders consider themselves to be sighted, so they are deluded. The blind being led don't realize they're blind. 
So would you swear allegiance to a blind leader? And if so, on what basis would you do it? Would you want to follow such a one? They're blind. So are you. Would you swear allegiance? Could we build our house on such a foundation? Would it not be swept away when the storm comes? Now, once again, in the first instance, Jesus' word applied to Jerusalem of his day and the whole system of Judaism with its tradition, law-keeping, and regulation. Be very, very careful in your religious formulations that you don't develop, however capital art reformed it might be, a whole system that is actually, essentially, hiding our blindness. Any system that makes us think we can gain acceptability as a result of our keeping of various laws not only makes us think that we have the moral upper hand, but it also causes us to lead others to destruction as well. And the point is all the more strong because the view of the first century Jew was that they really were enlightened. They were the enlightened elite, morally enlightened, a cut above the rest. The best religious system, the best legal system, the best educational system, the most forward-looking elite and social structures of the day, the most developed democracy, and this is what the world needs to see on parade. We really are something. And Jesus says, ah, yeah, the blind, leading the blind. Well, then the whole section comes to its conclusion in 15 through 20, and this is where he gets to the heart of the issue, and the heart of the issue is the issue of the heart. For the problem at the heart of all kind of human establishment systems is that they're just skin surface solutions, and they fail to solve spiritual sickness. Verse 15. Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the person passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. How clean are we, really? Out of the heart come these things, evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality. Anyone who so much looks at a woman with lust in his heart already committed adultery. You fool, you've already committed a murder at that roundabout when you were driving, wherever you were driving. How pure are we really? The issue is the human heart, isn't it? The heart in the Bible is the whole person. You sometimes hear hear this really badly misunderstood at St. Helens. The heart is not the seat of the emotion in the Bible. So when you read the word heart, you shouldn't be thinking, oh, that's how I'm feeling. No, the heart in the Bible is what makes a person tick. It's what I value. It's who I am. It's what shaped my direction, my core desire, my goal, my aim in life. And Jesus is saying, out of the very person who I am come all these evil things. And if you take an hour to meditate on verse 19, is that not the reality? Out of the heart come evil thoughts. 
murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. In one sentence, Jesus cuts to the heart of the matter. Skin surface solutions, washing your hands, hedging around the law, whatever establishment ethics your system may have governed, whether it comes from Westminster or the White House or Red Square or Tiananmen Square, it's pure human skin surface fluff. It doesn't get to the heart of the issue and no human system can. It's the heart of man that is the problem and skin surface solutions fail to solve spiritual sickness. I I wish you'd been at the 10 o'clock where we had the children's talk. Do you see verse 17? It's not what goes into the mouth, uh, that what goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled. I think we had a first. I've never heard poop mentioned from a pulpit in St. Helens or St. Peter's before, but it was very graphic. What you eat, that's all it is, ultimately. That's not what makes you unclean. And then Karen, who was leading the children's section, said, our hearts just keep producing poop. We can't help pooping out sin. Now, I'm so sorry, you know, I've ruined the coronation quiche and probably put you off everything else. I'm really sorry about that, but it's very graphic, isn't it? Uh, Stethoscope, is that what the doctors have? Doctors, yeah, this stuff you stick in your ears and pretend you're listening to our hearts and tell us all sorts of things. On your heart for a moment, please. The real me. Out of the heart. What's that I can hear? Evil. Oh, what's that? Murder. Uh, What was that? Sexual immorality. And so in a sense, you know, you have a sense of feeling sorry for the Pharisee and the teacher of the law. Because they're blind, they just don't realize it. And they're just kind of like the court of King Caractus in all their tunics and uniforms with their knighthoods and peerages and the minister of this and their smart dresses from Vogue and blind as blind bats leading the whole nation into destruction. The blind leading the blind. Oh, there's only one king who can deal with the problem of the human heart. And so we're back to where we began. I wonder if you saw allegiance. Fear God, honor the king. Yeah, fine. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Okay, but with what understanding? Maybe you didn't. In a sense, who cares? Because the human system is only a human system, and it's only skin surface. It isn't a real solution. It's just a sticking plaster. Every culture has its sticking plasters, whether it's Red Square or Tiananmen Square, whether it's Westminster or the White House. And really, ultimately, oh, the human system, it's going to be uprooted. It's full of hypocrisy. It can only be so because it hedges around God's pure word. And the ceremonies, I mean, just come on. They're basically just a sham. God's not impressed by 10,000 soldiers. I mean, for goodness sake, is that all you can muster? And it's led by blind leaders. And boy, they're very dangerous. And it'll be pulled up like a weed. And what is needed? Well, is for a kingdom that is built on the solid foundation that deals with the human heart. And that's where we're going to go 
next week and what we're going to be thinking about now. As we think of the Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross to wash our hearts clean, rose from the grave to breathe new life into our hearts, poured out his spirit so that we can begin to be different as we establish our lives on the rock. Me lead us in prayer. Father, in this perishing world, we praise you that you have given us a sure hope, a solid foundation, the living Lord Jesus. We praise you that he did not budge from your law, but fulfilled its every demand and paid the price that our wicked hearts deserves and that he has poured out his spirit into us, bringing our hearts alive to praise and worship him. And we thank you in his name. Amen.